service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll I'm feeling stratty. You see that with the little with the little string bend behind the nut? Whoops. Ah! I like it. Got to end it with one of those, right? Hey there, this is Chris Shiflett. Welcome to another episode of Shred with Shifty. If you're watching this right now, then you're already on volume.com slash Shifty. But did you know you can always watch the ad-free versions of Shred with Shifty right here on volume.com? So if you don't want to be hassled by all those goofy YouTube uh, pop-up ads, just come right here, volume.com slash Shifty, where the only ads you're going to really have to deal with are uh, me endlessly yammering on about you know, upcoming shows like my third annual hometown holiday hoedown on December 22nd, December 23rd up in Santa Barbara. And of course, my March 2024 UK and Irish tour. Uh, and you can buy tickets for both of those over at ChrisShifflettMusic.com, where you can also pick up a copy of my new record, Lost at Sea, that's out now. Anyway, enough about that. Ad-free versions of Shred with Shifty right here on volume.com slash Shifty. All right, let's do a little housekeeping. Follow me on social media. Uh, and we're going to put some uh, names and links and stuff all, all around there. Why don't we first kick this off with some fan-submitted solos? And i got to tell you, I scoured Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Came up with a bunch. Kind of a lot. We're going to run them together. But I was over on TikTok, looking around on TikTok. And you would think something like this would live really on TikTok. Zero. Zero Shred with Shifty fan submitted videos on TikTok, which I'm guessing says something about maybe about uh, my age and the age of whoever it is that's watching this show. But that's fine. But, uh, you know, let's let's get it going on TikTok, too. OK, we got so many uh, fan submitted solos uh, from from the last few um, episodes that we're going to run them all together in a montage. Check it out. Here we go. Thank you. 
All right, give it up for all those fan solos. I love it. All those folks proving the idea that you don't have to learn it exactly like the record. You just learn it kind of and then put your own twist on it. So let's see. We got uh, Chris Gidoni and Andre Durkach. I apologize for mispronouncing anybody's name. But uh, those two took on Waiting for the Thunder by Blackberry Smoke. Fantastic job. We've got Andrew Guy Nichols doing Only in Dreams and also... Another guy doing all, Only in Dreams by Weezer, but I can't remember where I fa even found that video, so I don't know that guy's name. So if you're watching Unknown Guy, let us know. Send me a DM or comment uh, somewhere. We've got Fionn Reese and uh, Frank Davis tackling Hits Me by Lindsay L. Fantastic job. Frank Davis did it so good, he did it twice. Got it two times up there on Facebook. Um, we've got Guitar Strife. Handling the solo from Wanted Dead or Alive from the Forbidden Richie Sambora episode. You must have learned that quick. Way to go, buddy. Uh, and One Minute Riff, Tackling Alive uh, by Pearl Jam, Mike McCready, the last episode. Fantastic. And there was also Ferris James tackling the guitar solo from Alive. Ferris James, I happen to know, is in fact a drummer because I DM'd back and forth with this cat. And then I realized that his video was posted back in May. So I'm guessing... Uh, he wasn't actually, he didn't learn it from the Shred with Shifty episode unless he broke into our hard drive somehow and stole the raw footage back in May, which is totally possible, and that's what I'm going with. So there you go. Way to go, everybody. Clap it out, and let's get more of those. We can never have enough of these fan solos. And I don't think I found one for uh, Blake Schwarzenbach for Jawbreaker, so I want to see some accident-prone uh, videos out there, okay? Come on, Shred with Shiftyites, let's go. Okay, everybody's favorite section. Uh, these are some exclusive clips that you can only find right here on volume.com from the previous four episodes. Let's kick this thing off with Mr. Brad Paisley, one of the greatest honky-tonk guitar players the world has ever known, talking about uh, uh, the technical parts of his guitar playing and then having to do that while singing live. No easy task. <laughs> Damon O'Leary wants to know, how do you play such technical guitar parts and sing at the same time? And like, there's a lot of ripping fill guitar stuff between lines in your songs. How, how do you deal with that? Well, I, in my case, usually it's born in the studio where I'll sit there and I'll come up with something that I think works under it. And, uh, and then I got to sit there and I'll usually try to decide at that moment if this is going to be committed forever to tape can i do this and sing it once i've learned it then you got to learn it that's the other challenge is then you go back and try to learn the part and then it becomes second nature it just sort of does it just becomes this thing um but it, it you'd have to learn it i mean it's like something that's got like a i'm trying to think of what songs have a lot of that stuff there's like that there's a lot of stuff in uh in ticks that way it's like you know i know the perfect little i mean there's things going on and you're just you have to learn whatever the lick is you know and you've been doing this since you were a kid basically like performing live yeah to some degree um 
but the, where where it really got born that sort of idea of like an intricate guitar part that goes through the song was in the studio it's like i figured mm. all right i'm gonna play this stuff i know i can do it if i can't pull it off live one of my like another band member could play it but then i realized most of the time i can i can do both and it keeps me busy I remember years ago when you jumped up on stage with me in Santa Barbara when I was playing with my with my honky tonk band, uh, cover band, and um, and it's always impressed me so much, you know, because because I I went over, hey, do you want to you want to jump up and play a tune? And you're like, sure. I go, oh, let me, I'll go get the set list, and you can figure it out. And then you just go, ah, I know all those hillbilly tunes you're playing. I was like, what? <laughs> okay, just any of them? You're like, yeah, whatever. And then you did. It was amazing, man. I'm like that is a confident performer right there. I'd be like, oh, let me, let me get a guitar. I gotta research it. Oh. I'm just, I'm, I'm dumb, <laughs> <laughs> dumb and brave. You know, hey, it's, a, it's like don't jump off that. <laughs> All right, Brad Paisley, man. I gotta take uh, take some of that advice and learn how to do that a little bit better myself. All right, next up, Mr. Charlie Starr from Blackberry Smoke. Mr. Charlie Starr, who has one of the most amazing collections of vintage guitars I've ever seen, uh, is here discussing his love of Les Paul Juniors. Let's go. There are a whole <laughs> lot of folks that wanted me to ask you um, about your love of Les Paul Juniors, which I yeah. know you to have. Like, I mean, I remember that when I first went out and did shows opening for you guys back in 2019, being... Um, Pretty amazed at your, I think your vintage guitar collection that you take on tour with you alone is like one of the more impressive ones I've ever seen. So I can only imagine what you have back at home. But do you have a lot of Les Paul Juniors? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I have double digits. Um, I love them. And they're all they're They they all have a fingerprint. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day about picking favorites with them because they are so different. And uh, the the technology at the time, you know, when there were there were like two or three ladies winding pickups in the fifties there in Kalamazoo, and uh, it was like at these sewing tables, you know, they had these these winding machines that wound the copper wire, you know, around the bobbins. And um, I was the little story that my friend told was that you know they had a foot brake on those machines, and they would. Uh, they see a counter that's supposed to wind, you know, 8,500 turns or whatever. They didn't always get that foot break in there on time. Maybe they were telling a story. Maybe they, you know, got, oops. So some of those pickups, you know, a little so hotter than others. It wasn't like Martha was like, I'm going to wind this one hot because I want this. Thing that's right. <laughs> I want him to bark like Zach Wilde. <laughs> oh, that was my buddy Charlie Starr on his love of Les Paul Jr. He said he's got double digits. Really? Well, kick one down to your old pal, the shifter, man. I'm ready. All right, let's uh, let's go here. Next up is Blake Schwarzenbach from Jawbreaker talking about not just his songwriting, but just, you know, songwriting generally and just writing and coming from a family of writers. This is Blake from Jawbreaker. Let's read with Shifty. Did, is there anything we missed in Accident Prone that we need to cover? Or is that pretty much the, the long and the short of it for the kids at home watching? I don't think we really address the monumental poetry that happens in the in the writing of it, the lyrical aspect. Absolutely. If you can quickly sort of speak to the, your, you know, it's such an overused term, but your creative process. I mean, you were like, honestly, like, I don't want to just be super fan. Out. I'm just going to super fan out. And you're one of the best fucking lyricists of all time to me and to a lot of people. Your lyrics are. Thank you are up there with, with anybody, um, especially coming out of, you know, punk rock land. Um, 
in that time. Uh, there weren't a lot of people that that wrote at your level, in in my opinion. So where did that come from? I mean, I know you like is that like creative writing background or what? What is that? I don't know. I, I honestly, I mean, and I was kind of bragging without wanting to answer an actual question. <laughs> and you can you can totally not. Maybe that's a that's a that's an interview for another time. No, I will say this though. I think I was really fortunate to be in LA getting into punk music when I was because I would see X a lot and listen to their records and like those lyrics to me are profound. A lot of those SST bands, you know, lyrics were huge Minutemen, Saccharine Trust, um and I loved the Dream Syndicate and they had some pretty far out ideas. There was a kind of that psychedelic uh experimental writing was was present and it wasn't you know it wasn't like this crybaby shit that was pop punk it was like it was kind of <laughs> philosophical and existential yeah. and ab- yeah. absurdist sometimes so i just yeah i mean i come from a, a family of writers and and uh that just yeah that's how the language i had to find to do in my own songs but i heard it in a lot of other bands you come from a family of writers. There you go. I did not realize that. I like to say that. My grandmother was a writer. Okay. And uh, published young young adult stories, but pretty pretty smart ones. Well, it's interesting because your lyrics, um, you know, like, I always think that one of the, pretty much the main difference uh, lyrically between rock and country music is country music is very straightforward storytelling. You know, there's nothing really left to the imagine to to be interpreted. It's all right there. Whereas rock music tends to be kind of more esoteric or whatever, poetic. And you write in this way that is so hard to pull off, which is it's not straightforward, you know, there's there's plenty to be interpreted, but it also creates it really paints a clear picture. It's probably a different picture in everybody's head that's listening to it, but it's like there's a there's it's it is strong tel- storytelling in a in a in almost a more poetic way. It's it's yeah, it's hard to even quite put my finger on what it is. That's well said. I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it, it should be um, immediate in the sense of poetry, right? And I I get that from country. I mean, I think country lyrics, good country lyrics. Uh, have like an immediacy that's that's on par with any kind of writing right where like you could the economy of it is yes. profound to me and sometimes just going straight for the thing but like that's i one of my recent models is kern river by merle haggard oh yeah about losing his partner up in near lake shasta and like it's about the, the river that took his love yeah yeah and it's like he calls it a mean piece of water <laughs> like there's all these lines in that song that are just so tough. And, oh yeah. And, I mean, you talk about an economy of writing, like you know some of Merle's best songs, like um, "Holding Things Together" or um, "Today I Started Loving You Again." It's one verse, one chorus. That's it. And and you don't need any more. You know, that's that's that is a hard thing to pull off in any kind of song. Yeah, and they're just precise too. Yeah. Like there's a, yeah, I don't know. I, I really marvel at a lot of those lyrics that you, as a kid, you'd hear them and think it was very simple. And then as you get older, you realize it's, it's actually really, really difficult and 
precise, yeah. even though it may seem uh, kind of colloquial, like I'm just speaking to you in a bar. Right. But like they're picking every word for its size and its, its impact. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite, favorite songwriters from all of punk rock, just all the music generally, Blake Schwarzenbach from Jawbreaker, uh, give, dropping some, some serious songwriting knowledge on you. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, so uh, next up here we got Mike McCready from Pearl Jam talking about Yellow Leadbetter, which I think for a lot of people was the song that they were hoping we were going to cover on this episode, uh, but we didn't. We covered a lot. And by the way, if you haven't watched it, go watch that full episode because you can see him fumble his way through the intro riff, which I didn't realize wasn't him playing. I asked him how to play it, and then he didn't know, and it's funny. It's cute. Uh, anyway, here he is talking about how he came up with the riffs in Yellow Leadbetter. Let's go. Okay, I got a lot of questions about okay, go ahead. Yellow yeah. Leadbetter. Uh, yes. Lots of questions about that song in particular, but this one jumped out, which was, uh, what was the exact amp, guitar, and pedals for the studio version of that song? So that was a, um, a Fender Bassman, um, probably a 1990s version of a Fender Bassman. Um, uh and it was on the uh the out of phase i think they still call it that pickup which is the one that's there's there's five positions on this one yeah so it's it's the second one oh i i watched i kind of learned that from stevie and and uh, hendrix hendrix uses it on uh, little wing i think um so it's like so it has from the so that's just one over from the bridge is that the one, one over from the no yeah. one over from the knobs from like, it's like the second highest, but does that make sense? A... Yeah. Again, with the thumb and the, you know, that, that allowed me when I first so that that's the amp. It was a Fender. Ba it was a basement and a the 1962 uh, a black Fender Stratocaster that those guys got me. Nice. You can't beat a Fender through a Fender. That always no, works. It worked great. And was there and was there anything else on there like Univibe or a Overdrive, anything like that? No. It was just it was just the it was just a, that tone and I was. Uh, it's a thing I had written before the band. You know, before Pearl Jam was even around. It's just something I had sitting around and. So yeah, it's it's a lot of thumb stuff. Uh, again, if I want to get into the technique of it, when I first, I would always watch Hendrix at Monterey Pop, and there's that he does that. That's it. Um. But it's that he. Uh, uh, what it's what he opens up with. Uh, kill, uh, I should have mentioned Killing Floor. Um, ah. Alan Wolf. So at any, at any rate. I never, I, I could watch Hendrix play with the sun, but it never made any sense. Right. Until I saw Steve Ray Vaughan do it live. And I, and I went, whoa, that's how you do it. And so that's when I started to do that kind of stuff, which is in the late, mid 80s, mid to late. Because you kind of have to learn, instead of doing chords this way. Yeah. It was it. So. Yeah, that is very cool. Yeah, that's where that came from. 
All right, that was a bunch of exclusive clips. You could only get them here on volume.com slash shifty, the place to watch ad-free versions of every show and these uh, super fun um, exclusive solo review episodes that we're doing right now. I think we should get into some fan questions. It's uh, kind of the funnest part of these episodes, and I took down a lot. I got pages and pages of fan episodes, I got, or fan questions. I got too many fan questions, but I'm just going to answer them. I'm going to try to keep it brief so I can jet through as many of these as I, as, I, as I possibly can. Let's see what we got here. Okay, Nick Sanders Nature asked, I loved your solos on stage with Liam Gallagher at the Tribute concert. Did you get to meet him? Yes, I did. He came and soundchecked with us the day before the show. I think it was the day before the show. And he was, out of probably everybody that played, he was so mellow. He just came out, sang the songs, uh, looked over at me and goes, all right, and then walked off. And that was it. And then I got to see him, uh, you know, right before we went out on stage and played those songs with him. And he's, that guy just has a great energy about him. He's like confident in his you know, in his voice and craft, and he just goes out there and just nails it. I love it. Love his whole vibe. Jim Bob Metherell. I'm going to definitely destroy most of the names on here, but Jim Bob Metherell asks, he says, loving the new record. I would love to hear you country frying some rock covers just to demonstrate your great and diverse techniques. You see how he's buttering me up there? Uh, what do you think? What do I think? I think I got just the thing for you because me and the boys recorded a couple covers the other day. And I think we're going to do a couple more, but we already recorded Cowboy Song by Thin Lizzy uh, and did kind of a, a, a disco country version of it. And then we recorded uh, Don't You Ever Leave Me by Hanoi Rocks. So going to finish those up and get those out hopefully in the next few months. We'll see. Beth Me 87 what was your musical inspiration on Burn the House Down? That's a song from my new record, Lost at Sea, that if you haven't picked it up, you should go get a, grab one. Um, my musical inspiration, God, I honestly don't even remember because the demo that, we, that I made leading into it was so different than how uh, we wound up playing it. But I do remember Jerry, the drummer, that played on session, Jerry Rowe, saying it reminded him of that song, The Rat. Or not that the song really reminded him of that, but that with the sort of the... The way we were trying to, to cut it reminded him of that. So I'll take that. That wasn't really the musical inspiration, but it's kind of where it wound up, I guess. So that's cool. Paul Areno, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, hey man, I'm a huge fan. I really enjoy the new record. I missed you at Fingerprints in Long Beach. You've played on the biggest stages in the world, but what's one thing that makes you nervous or second guess during live shows like that? Also, if you've got his number, tell Liam Gallagher I said hello. Why does Liam Gallagher keep coming up in fan questions today? I don't, did something, some footage of us with him go viral and I just didn't catch that? I don't know. Anyway, what's the one thing that makes you nervous or second guess during live shows like that, big shows? I would say uh, you always feel a little nervous playing the newer songs because they're not really fully in your hands yet. And then, of course, like, if you then have to, like, sing a harmony or something and you're trying to remember how to play it and trying to remember the words and nail the boat. All that stuff kind of comes together. Those are the moments that, that I get a little, little nervous. I don't think of it as nervous. I think of it as excited. I get excited. Sam Theum. What guitar have you found yourself playing more than you thought you would this tour? Well, I'll tell you which guitar I haven't played more than I thought I would this tour, and that is my BC Rich Mockingbird that I bought uh, at the very beginning of the tour. I thought I was going to be playing that the whole time. 
but it had some serious electrical issues and it's been in the shop. But I'm happy to say it's out now and it's on its way to Australia where it's going to feature heavily moving forward. Um, and uh, as far as which one that I have actually been playing, I've been playing my 82 Black Beauty, man. Talked about it on this show. Um, my very first Les Paul. It's back in rotation and I couldn't be happier. Delco Sold asks or says, Chris, you need to get Ace on to do Love Gun. I agree. We're working on it. I've reached out to his people. Trust me. It's going to happen, I hope. Uh, even artists, I, let's see. Oh, that's it. That was it. It's a statement. It's not a question. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I'm working on it, man. It's, it's, we're going to get Ace on the show one of these days. JB Action says, love the new record, Chris. Songs are just so well written and crafted. See, he's buttering me up. It's appealing to my ego. That's fine. I'm talking about the song. I love the guitars and the playing, but these songs have heart and energy. Vocals are top-notch, too, which I think you're seriously overlooked for. Thanks, pal. Who do you think has influenced your writing more than you may have thought looking back on it? So many people, uh, but out of like the folks that I've worked with over the years, um, Tony Sly, the singer for No Use For Name. I was just starting to write songs when I was in, it's sort of the tail end of me being in No Use For Name. I was just kind of making an attempt to write songs and they weren't any good and I gave him some demos and he gave me some very kind words of encouragement that I still think about when, when, uh, when I'm writing songs. And it was basically like, you need to have better melodies than that. So, uh, which is good advice, man. He was all about the melody. Part two of this question. Was there a song that nearly didn't make the record or turned out better than you thought? There were a bunch of them, and, um, and I've been thinking about a couple of them recently, and, and uh, i got to go unearth those demos and, and uh, see if there's anything there. Because sometimes you do that. Sometimes you write a bunch for a record, and then songs don't make it, and uh, maybe it's a half-baked idea, and then you come back to it a few years later, and you're like, man, why didn't we do that? It's better. So hopefully there's one of those in there. Steve Rose. What's the one guitar that got away? I'll tell you the one guitar that got away, and I still think about it to this day. There was a, a uh, non, or is it reverse fire? Non-reverse firebird. The one that's not the regular one. It looks more like, you know, it goes this way, not this way. There was a non-reverse firebird um, at, a, at a guitar store in Stockholm that I saw years ago. And the whole thing was gold, like a, like a gold top. It was like gold top paint. And I'd never seen, seen one like this. The headstock, the neck, everything. Uh, and it was so beautiful. But it was in Stockholm. So it was really, really expensive. And I remember I promised myself, if I come, next time I come back here on tour, if this is here, I'm going to buy it. And I came back a few years later on tour, and it was still there. And I still didn't buy it. Because it was even more expensive by then. And then I came back another time and it was gone. So that one to me, I really should have bought that guitar. It was beautiful and unlike any other uh, non-reverse Firebird I've ever seen. And as probably many of you know, I have a fondness for the, that particular shape and that particular guitar. Okay, Keef5150. This is a question that, that uh, it, it makes, it's, it's timely for me. Uh, it says here, are you Foo guys using modelers or real amps on your current tour? We are using real amps on stage, but I have been messing quite a bit with, um, with, with amp modelers lately. I've been touring in my solo thing with a Strymon Iridium. On this show, I generally use uh, a Line 6 Helix. That's all Helix right there. 
Um, I just got a Fender Tone Master, you know, their new uh, amp modeling setup, and that thing sounds really good too, although I haven't done a gig with it. And, um, and, and I also just got a, a neural quad cortex, which is fantastic. So, yeah, um, I like them. I think it's great. I don't know that I would use one in Foos necessarily because we have like a great crew and a big stage and it sounds good to have real amps. But for my crummy little van tours, I'm amp modeler all the way. It's easy and it's consistent. And then in a related question, Sarah Moores asks, is the trend towards silent stages, digital modelers, in-ears, etc., neutering the electric guitar as we know it? That is a great question. I think didn't Joe Bonamassa just say something about that recently? Didn't he have a didn't he have a quote about that? It probably is in some regard, but it's also I don't know. I think it's really fun and kind of inspiring. I'm I fought the in ear thing as you can see. I've got in ears on right now. How much can you see the detail? Can you see the Arsenal logo on my in ears? Is that like I don't know if, if that shows through on this video? Arsenal. These are my special Arsenal. In-ears. Anyway, I've fought the in-ear thing for a long time, and then I gave into it. And honest to God, if you have to sing on a stage with a bunch of loud stuff, you can't beat this. It's the greatest thing in the world. And I really like the uh, the uh, the amp modeler thing. But, you know, you, as guitar players, you sort of you bounce around. Like one year you're playing a Fender Princeton. Then you're playing a Marshall. Then you're using an amp modeler, and you're like, oh, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And then six months later, you go back to a Mesa Boogie. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. I like constantly tweaking and changing. I, I think yeah, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, and it just kind of depends on what you're doing or what you're looking for. But I, 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 the silent stage thing is especially weird for guests. Because if you've ever been on the side of a stage that has no amps, it's fucking weird, man. It's, it is definitely unnatural. So uh, you're probably right. It's probably neutering us all. Who the hell knows? Hey, you're listening to Shred with Shifty. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Morning Fuzz Rock says, What are the settings on the DD3 delay for Aurora Live? And what drive are you using? Uh, uh, and also says, also please make your next Tele Deluxe with a matching headstock and possibly Fiesta Red. Boy, are you in luck, Morning Fuzz Rock. But I'll get to that. I'll get to that later. Um, I will tell you, I'm not using a DD3 delay. I'm using my Strymon Timeline on that. I didn't play on that record, so I don't know for sure what was used on the record, although I kind of feel like it was a memory man, because um, I think Dave was using a memory man a lot in that time frame, like a memory man through an AC30, but you specifically asked for live. So I will tell you, I've got my timeline. I think it's on like an eighth note slap back, one repeat, dut, 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 that kind of thing. So it's not going dut, 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 dut. When I first joined the band, I had no idea how to set a delay pedal and I would have it do a lot of repeats and it would just sound like a complete clusterfuck. But I figured out some, somewhere in all that, you just need that one repeat and then it makes the riff work. Um, and as far as a drive, I use for, for the verse and the chorus, I'm just going right into my AC30 on a pretty light gain setting. And then for the, um, wait, what did I say? The verse and the chorus? Yeah, verse and the chorus. And then when the song goes big, I go to the Freedman's and that's pretty gained up. So, but, so I'm not actually using any drive, just amp gain. That's it. Hope that helps. Morning Fuzz Rock. Casey 
the Renaissance says how to get along with your bandmates, which I guess he means like how do you get along with bandmates when you're in a band? That can be very difficult, man, and that's why bands break up all the time. Especially if you've been like in a band with people for a long time, you really have to have some mutual love and respect to make that work over the years. And I always say the trick to being in a band isn't always necessarily how well you play whatever instrument it is. It's how well can you sit in tight quarters with a bunch of other people and not annoy the fuck out of them. And you don't always get that balance quite right. But, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully you get it right most of the time. Good luck. Brock Vaughn says, love the guitar store lick question you raised with the guests. What's yours? Do you love, I'd like to know from the people out there, is that something that you guys want to know? Like, I thought it was kind of like a, like a gimme to me that, that everybody goes into a guitar store and has a thing that they play, but most people don't really seem to have one. So I don't know. I thought it was a good question. I appreciate you asking. Um, when I go into a guitar store and I pick up a guitar, I don't even play a lick. I play chords. Big cowboy chords. And then I move some chords around the neck. So I want to hear, uh, and, then, and then once I get through some of the chords, then I get into some string bands. Because I want to hear if it's fretting out up here. Because I like to do a lot of string bands. Stuff like that, I like to bend around up there, and then, you know, maybe you go into something. Like we covered in the Mike McCready episode, you can never uh, uh, get tired of, of uh, putting a guitar through its paces with some good old Ace Fraley. Something like that. Anyway, that's my guitar store lick. My guitar store lick is not licks, it's chords. And then kind of a companion question to that, guitar store lick, unchained. Not sure why it's not everyone's. I've got an answer for you, Scott M. Duncan. The reason unchained is not everybody's guitar store lick is because it's in D, and then I think it's even drop tuned a little bit from there, but at the very least you gotta be in drop D. But uh, you can kind of work around it, you know. But really, you gotta be like. Oh, no, that's not it. Something like that. Um, but I think it's drop D and then even, what is it, C sharp? I think the whole thing's tuned down. So that's, I'm guessing, why most people don't make that their uh, guitar store lick. But you could. And from now on, I will, Scott M. Duncan. Deering Crossfire says, as an electric guitar guy, do you find acoustic hard, easy, something else? I find it hard. It's absolutely, and especially when I'm doing my acoustic shows, I feel like I'm cheating by not playing it very well, by being more of a strumming dummy. I, I, I fantasize about having great, like, you know, acoustic finger style, but I just don't. So, I'm, and I'm more focused on trying to remember my lyrics. Anyway, Nick would go, best advice for practicing tremolo on bends. I don't use a tremolo bar much, unless you're talking about, like, vibrato. You might be talking about vibrato. So, um, best advice for practicing on them, just try to land them. Try to bend up to the note 
I mean, this is what I would do. Try to bend up to the nose. And then, and you can practice different, different sort of speeds of uh, vibrato. You know, you can give it the old fast. That's fun for certain things, or you can go real slow. That's nice, or somewhere in between. I don't know. Is that what you meant? I don't know. Or if you mean like dive bombs, I'm not good at them. I never do them. Marco Choa87 asks, best Van Halen deep cut track. Is there such a thing as a Van Halen deep cut track? Aren't they all like pretty well known? I would say as far as non-singles for me, DOA. Adam Trout Trobman, my man Trout, uh, this is a friend, says, what fish do you want to catch the most from the kayak? Oh, that is a tough question. Uh, I'm usually going after, you know, uh, really, I'm usually going after kelp bass. But I would like to catch something a lot more glorious than that. Like maybe like a nice white sea bass. You know what I mean? But you're going to have to help me out with that trout. Total Bullfrog wants to know, do you play with headphones? Do you look at tabs? Do you sand the neck? Do you ever give up on learning a solo? Do you spend an afternoon on the couch with a guitar? Total bullfrog, I do all those things, and I do all those things all the time. Skydog Disciple, do you practice with a metronome? Eh, I mean, I have, but I don't often. Cheese Ranger 76, should I top wrap my Les Paul? What the fuck is top wrapping a Les Paul? That sounds like wrapping a car or something. Uh, I don't know what that means. I'm just gonna say no. Leave your Les Paul how it is. BK Coondog wants to know, studio gear for last album, go-to amps, effects, etc. I'll tell you what, my, the last two records I've been a part of making, I did not bring much of anything to them. I used the stuff that was there, worked with some great producers and uh, other musicians and stuff that had great gear, and I just rode their coattails. Xander Scott, not counting a broken string, what was the worst live show gear malfunction you've ever had with the Foo Fighters? And what's the worst live show gear malfunction you've ever had, period? Hmm. Worst, we played on, what was it? We played on Letterman years ago. And we had our amps off stage because we were doing like a Beatles reenactment thing. And something, I don't even remember what went wrong with my amp, but all the amps were off stage, so I couldn't like reach over and fiddle with it. And it was a horror show because we did like a kind of a long, you know, for a TV appearance, like a mini set. And my guitar sounded fucking terrible and you know you got when your guitar is not gained upright that's a that's a rough 20 minutes let me tell you mindy radican i'd like to know if you had a difficult time learning to play right-handed though you write left-handed and how that all came about and can you play left-handed i cannot play left-handed i it never even occurred to me to play left-handed i do different I, you know i kick with my left foot or right with my left hand but i stand traditional you know when i when i box and stuff like that so um uh, maybe I'm a little ambidextrous or something. I don't know. I always thought it'd be cool to try to record an album left-handed because it would sound like, you know, it would just be like super shitty. And it would be would have been fun. I always wanted to do that on a Gimme Gimme's record to make like play a guitar solo like real, real shitty left-handed. Uh, John Armsby. Man, you get on Facebook, you get some of these long questions. This is a three-parter. So let's, uh, let's try to break this down. I'd be really keen to hear you talk about breaking a song down to perform acoustically because when you do that, songs sonically and lyrically take on a whole new life and meaning. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Your songs, my songs always become a lot slower. Uh, you have to do that thing of figuring out, well, can you get away with playing the guitar solo? Can you work out a guitar solo where you're kind of going back to the chords? Um, I tend to just kind of strum through it, which feels like I'm cheating a little bit. But yeah, it's, that's tough, man. 
Uh, I think for acoustic, also, like you really got to be on top of your vocal. It's probably more important than the guitar in, in that, you know, because I do like solo guy acoustic shows. Besides the telly, how about a bit of a gig, re- uh, a bit of a gig review? Do you have, oh, we're not doing that. Just a few weeks now till I see your, you solo at the Workers in Mel- Workers Club in Melbourne. Are you bringing your full band or doing an acoustic? Yeah, all those shows down there, both the shows in Australia and the show in New Zealand are just me and an acoustic guitar. And that's it. Nowhere to hide. Ryan Beveridge. When you play older songs from the catalog of Foo Fighters, do you take the time to decide who's playing which guitar parts? We used to take more time. Now we just kind of fall into it. Yeah. We're just old season pros, you know? Cashel O'Reilly says, I basically have three questions for you, Chris Shiflett. In the earlier days of your career, which album made you, uh, made you want to say, fuck it, I am playing guitar from now on? Um, it wasn't really an album. It was a, it was a time period and a particular trip. Okay, I mean, it's a convoluted story. I was playing guitar for a few years, and then in eighth grade, I jammed with a couple friends. The first time I ever played with other people, right, in their garage. And we just played Dio over and over. I think we just went, you know, playing, um, what's the song? No, that's the, what? I think we did that. And we just did that over and over and over. And it was really fun. It kind of got me thinking like, wow, I'd like to be in a band. And then those friends moved to L.A. and I went down to visit them for a week that summer. It was the summer between 8th and ninth grade. And L.A. was popping. It was like the L.A. rock scene was kind of in a transition point where we'd been going to shows like heavy metal bands. And now there was this new sort of glam rock thing bubbling up. And I just remember walking around Melrose and going into shops like Retail Slut and Flash Feet and all that Aardvarks and uh, Renee's Records and just walking around and collecting flyers and saying it was just like rock and roll everywhere. And that was the moment for me that I went, I want to fucking do this for real. It was collecting flyers on Melrose. Question, part two of this question. How frustrating was your hunt for the right tone? Well, it is, uh, I don't think of it as frustrating. I think of it as very fun. And that is a hunt, you said, you put that in the past tense. But that is a hunt that never ends. You're always looking for the right tone or a new tone or a different tone. And that continues right up until this day. And one last thing, can you please do a solo tour to South Africa? I'd love to. It's a long flight. Long flight. Does anybody care? I don't know. I'll come. You don't have to twist my arm. Okay, I have one more question here today. And that is from Christopher Todd Davis. And the question is, What's your favorite Hanoi record? For those of you that don't know what he's referring to, that would be Hanoi Rocks. And then he says, I know, it's not about guitars. Okay, based on the guitar sounds, what's your favorite Hanoi record? Well, my favorite Hanoi record would probably have to be uh, Back to Mystery City. And I do like the guitar tones on that. But if we're talking just favorite guitar tones on a Hanoi record... It's two steps from the move all day. It's Bob Ezrin producing. So that album to me is a perfect masterpiece of production, tone, songwriting, etc., etc., etc. That to me was an album that just completely changed my life. And when I hear the way those those guitars sound, it just takes me right back to being 13 years old when when I got that record for the first time. 
I took a great lesson the other day from um, from my man Bart Walker, and he taught me this lick. Okay, here we go. Oh, that was that was a painful, painfully weak ending on that, don't you think? Oh well. That's how we do it on Straight with Shifty. Real. No AI. Just fingers. All right, that's it for today. That was a lot of questions. Uh, thanks for submitting them. And keep the fan videos coming. We love them. We love to review them. And we will always put them on the review episodes right here on volume.com shifty, where you can always watch the ad-free versions of the show. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks with my buddy John Osborne from Brothers Osborne just killing it with some country twang. Adios, amigos. Shred with Shifty is created and hosted by me, Chris Shiflett, and produced in partnership with Double Elvis, Volume.com, and Premier Guitar. If you're digging the show, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe button so you get our new episodes when they come out every other week. Volume.com is a free platform with live stream performances, concert broadcasts, and a video archive that includes performances by Brothers Osborne, Stone Temple Pilots, Dirks Bentley, Weezer, and more. Shred with Shifty is produced by Jason Shadrick. Our executive producers are Brady Sadler and Jake Brennan for Double Elvis. Engineering support by Matt Tahaney and Matt Bowden. Our video editors are Dan DeStefano and Addison Savan. Special thanks to Chris Peterson, Greg Necron, and the entire Volume.com crew. Adios, amigos. Mm-hmm.